Welcome to the November Dermalogic Surgery Digest podcast and Beyond the Digest supplemental podcast. I am the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. In this month's journal, there is a retrospective review which characterizes the clinical differences between infected wounds with gram-positive and gram-negative bacterial cultures. Also, there's an interesting communication evaluating the time from diagnosis to treatment for a cohort of melanoma in situ and clinically node-negative invasive melanomas diagnosed from 2012 to 2019 using the National Cancer Database, which showed that advanced age and non-governmental insurance is associated with delays to treatment, but not extirpation with Mohn's surgery. In the Beyond the Digest, there is a targeted literature review on lentigo malignant that spans from 1990 to 2022, in which the authors work to describe the various surgical and tissue processing techniques, discussing advantages and disadvantages of each. Happy Thanksgiving, and as always, thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day. This segment of the episode features surgical oncology and reconstructive article reviews. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the original article, Clinical Characteristics of Gram-Negative Surgical Site Infections in Patients Treated with Mohs Micrographic Surgery, a Retrospective Analysis by authors Alexander Hicks and Ramona Bashad. This is a retrospective analysis at a single institution investigating the clinical features and risk factors for gram-negative infections after Mohs surgery. Gram-negative surgical site infections are less common than infections caused by gram-positive bacteria, mainly Staph aureus and Strep. A cohort of 676 wound cultures that were taken within 30 days postoperatively after Mohs surgery was analyzed. In addition to the culture result, information on patient demographics, surgical site, and wound characteristics such as pain and erythema was collected through chart review and clinical photo review. Of the 676 cultures, 44% were positive for gram-positive bacteria, 15% grew gram-negative bacteria, and 41% were culture-negative. Of note, all cultures were taken due to clinical suspicion for infection. The most common gram-positive pathogens were Staph aureus, both MSSA and MRSA, and the most common gram-negative pathogens were Klebsiella and Pseudomonas. There was no statistically significant difference between gram-positive, gram-negative, and culture-negative cohorts based on surgical location or patient demographic factors including age, diabetes, immunosuppression, or smoking status. Gram-negative infections did have significantly lower rates of severe erythema and purulence compared to gram-positive infections. Compared to culture-negative wounds, gram-negative wounds were significantly more edematous and trended towards having more pain. I think that this is really the most important finding of the paper, that gram-negative surgical site infections may present more subtly than the more common infections due to gram-positive organisms with less erythema and purulence and possibly only mild edema and pain. The study did not compare outcomes among gram-positive and gram-negative infections. 
Furthermore, the cohort only included wounds that were cultured due to clinical suspicion for infection. It would be interesting in future studies to know the rate of gram-negative culture positivity for wounds that did not have any clinical signs of infection, and to know whether these culture results represent colonization or have any clinical impact. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation, a cross-sectional analysis of Sharp's injuries among dermatologic surgeons, a survey of American College of Mohs Surgery members by first author Feza Telebi-Liasi and senior author Jesse Lewin. One in 10 hospital-based healthcare workers experience a Sharps injury each year. Compared with other physicians, dermatologists and dermatology residents have higher rates of injury closer to those of general surgery. The authors of this study sought to determine incidents and types of Sharps injuries among most surgeons in different practice settings, survey blood-borne pathogen exposure rate, self-reporting of exposures and access to post-exposure prophylaxis, and determine surgeons' confidence in staff, Sharp's handling knowledge, and injury reporting. They performed a survey-based cross-sectional study of Mohs surgeons with membership in the American College of Mohs Surgeons. An anonymous 10-question multiple-choice survey was constructed using GredCap and distributed via email to ACMS members via the listserv. Of the 60 respondents, more than half were from single specialty group practice at 56.7%, followed by academics at 26.6%. Within the past year, 43.3% of respondents experienced no sharps injuries, followed by one sharps injury at 31.7%, 21.6% experienced two or three, and 3.3% experienced more than three sharps injuries. Among sharps injuries, suture needle stick was the most common type of injury at 76.5%. Followed by other types of self inflicted needle stick at 26.5%, then injury with a scalpel blade during assembly at 5.8%, and from loose sharps on the surgical tray at 5.8%. Based on the reported range, a minimum total number of sharps injuries was 52 among 60 respondents, which corresponds to an average annual rate of 0.87 sharps injuries per person per year. Among respondents who sustained a Sharps injury, 44.1% did not report. 24.6% reported only with exposure to a bloodborne pathogen, and 29.4% reported all injuries. Of those who reported Sharps injuries, 14.7% reported one time exposure to bloodborne pathogen within the past year. Overall, I was surprised by the low rate of reporting and agree with the authors who stated that a culture of safety and transparency without blame fosters injury reporting and will ensure appropriate workup and treatment after Sharp's injuries. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the original article titled Efficacy and Safety of Anxiolytics in Mohs Micrographic Surgery, a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial by authors Danny Guo, David Zlotti, and Irene Consisteva. The article begins by discussing the association between perioperative anxiety and subsequent increased blood pressure, heart rate, bleeding, and postoperative analgesic requirements. As such, the use of perioperative anxiolytics have been used to mitigate these changes. Previously, literature has described the effectiveness of benzodiazepines for reduction of pre-mode surgery anxiety and subsequent improved patient satisfaction and pain. Despite these reports, a study found that only 4% of most surgeons have prescribed a benzodiazepine. In addition, other studies have reported the use of non-traditional anxiolytics such as melatonin and GABA-related compounds. This study sought to quantitatively assess the efficacy and safety of various preoperative anxiolytics for patients undergoing Mohs surgery. 
350 patients who requested preoperative anxiolytics had facial skin cancer, were over 18 years old, not pregnant, and this was their first Mohs surgery, were enrolled in the study. Seven arms of the study included lorazepam, diazepam, alprazolam, gabapentin, pregabalin, melatonin, and placebo. I would refer the reader to the article for exact dosing regimens. Anxiety levels were measured at baseline 30 minutes after administration but before administering local anesthetic, before the second Mohs layer, and postoperatively. Mean duration of surgery was 406.8 minutes. Figure 1 clearly depicts the differences over time between these different agents compared to placebo. Notably, the placebo group experienced significant decrease in anxiety over time. Overall, diazepam demonstrated statistically significant, sustained reduction in anxiety throughout all time points. Gabapentin had significant effect at the early time points, but this was not sustained over time. Whereas lorazepam, pregabalin, and melatonin failed to reduce anxiety at any time point when compared to placebo. Interestingly, melatonin trended towards increased anxiety at some time points. No statistically significant changes were observed in vital signs or cognition at any time point compared to baseline in all treatment arms. Patient satisfaction was high for all groups except the melatonin group. In the discussion, the authors do speak to the black box warning with benzodiazepines for risk of dependence with overuse. Due to the single-dose regimen for preoperative anxiolysis, the risk that of this is noted to be negligible as it has been published that this risk is directly correlated with duration of use. In addition, their use may reduce the need for pain medications, including opioids, reducing the risk and dependence and overuse of these medications. They also discuss that the use of GABA-related medications could be considered for patients undergoing shorter surgeries or those with contraindications for the use of benzodiazepines. A notable limitation of the study is the exclusion of midazolam, as this medication is not available in the jurisdiction of the authors. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the original article, What Do We Know About Hair Growth Induced by Wounding and Its Therapeutic Applications? A link between hair follicle growth and wound healing has been reported in clinical and basic science research and has led to the use of hair transplant grafts to facilitate wound healing and wound-inducing procedures to stimulate hair growth. The role of the hair follicle in wound healing promotion can be explained by the migration of bulge epithelial, epithelial stem cells to the wounded epidermis, migration of mesenchymal dermal sheath cells to the wounded dermis, and by paracrine effects on hair follicles during the hair cycle. The mechanism of hair growth after wounding is due to activation of existing hair follicles changes in the hair cycle or activation of signaling pathways. In this study, a literature review was conducted to review cases of localized hypertrichosis induced by wounds and the role of microneedling, fractional laser, and scalp threading as monotherapy for androgenetic alopecia. Based on the results of the literature review, the authors found there is sufficient clinical evidence to support that certain wounds can stimulate localized hair growth, but the specific optimal wound conditions are yet to be elucidated. It seems that the breakage of the cutaneous surface is not necessary to cause hair regrowth, as most of the reported cases occurred in deep traumatic wounds. Hair growth seems to be most common in chronic injuries and can be explained by three pathways. Activation of the Wnt signaling pathway, macro-environment changes, and increased angiogenesis. 
In terms of the clinical activation of wound-induced procedures to stimulate hair growth, there is insufficient evidence at this time to show the efficacy of microneedling or laser resurfacing in monotherapy treatment for androgenetic alopecia. Scalp thread embedding is a procedure in which threads are inserted into the dermal layer of the scalp, resulting in intradermal wounds and foreign body reaction. Scalp threading has been shown to increase hair density and thickness with just one session, likely due to its ability to induce chronic inflammation. However, additional studies are needed. I found this article to be interesting. However, additional research certainly is needed before any recommendations regarding practice changes can be made. This is Michael Renzi reviewing Repair of a Large Lateral Brow Defect by first author Jason Klein and senior author Rajiv Nijawan. The authors report the reconstruction of a 1.8 by 3.5 centimeter defect that included the right lateral brow along the portion of the upper eyelid and right inferior forehead following three stages of Mohs surgery for a recurrent squamous cell carcinoma. A unilateral advancement flap was designed with the intention to use periosteal tacking sutures at the orbital rim to close the large lateral brow defect in a single stage while preserving eye function, eyelid and brow position, and the medial hair bearing brow. The surgical flap was intentionally designed to place the primary incision as lateral as possible away from the central face. The standing cone redundancy was also intentionally displaced medially above the brow to preserve as much hair-bearing brow as possible. The cosmetic outcome at four-month FOMP can be seen in figure three of the article. This is Christy Regula reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, male unit reconstruction after surgery for refractory retronychia by first author Kimberly Sable and senior author Molly Hinshaw. This reconstructive conundrum presents the case of a 16-year-old boy who presented with a three-month history of a painful, abnormal left gray toenail that began after stubbing his toe. He had been treated for perinicchia with a course of cephalexin, twice daily warm water soaks, and surgical removal of granulation tissue followed by cautery and silver nitrate without significant improvement. On examination, the patient was diagnosed with severe retronychia. Retronychia is proximal ingrowing of the nail into the proximal nail fold preceded by trauma that lifts the central portion of the proximal nail plate, leaving the lateral horns attached. New nail begins to grow under the existing nail, pushing it upwards, with resultant inflammation of periungal tissue mimicking primary perinicchia. With increasing severity, oozing edema and granulation tissue develop. This often presents similar to chronic perinicchia, but viewing the nail from its lateral aspect will show loss of the Levibond angle, which is the angle between the proximal nail fold and the nail, which distinguishes it from retronychia, distinguishes retronychia from usual primary perinicchia. Surgical avulsion have been reported to produce the highest cure rate, better than conservative measures. However, one out of every 10 patients undergoing surgical intervention have complications, including development of nail dystrophy because of problems of the underlying nail bed, pain, distal embedding, nail splitting, ingrown nail formation, and scarring. To preserve the anatomic location between the proximal nail fold and the nail matrix, the most adherent nail may be left in place when it is healthy. In situations where the primary underlying nail cannot be retained, a temporary placeholder material may be inserted into the location of the patient's displaced nail. Numerous placeholder materials exist, and those are listed in Table 1. 
but these artificial materials may not be available at the time of surgery, and if they are, there are costs and risks to their use. This article proposes use of the patient's own evolved nail as a placeholder in reconstructing the nail unit. After evulsion of the nail and underlying new nail growth, the nail plate was cleansed with chlorhexidine, rinsed with saline, and replaced in an anatomic position under the granulation tissue, uh, granulation tissue free proximal nail fold and atop the matrix and proximal bed. Two holes were drilled into each lateral aspect of the nail plate, and the plate was sutured to the lateral nail folds with 5 O polyglactin 910. The postoperative course was unremarkable, and at two-month follow-up, the autologous nail had fallen off naturally and was being replaced by a new healthy nail. The commentary that follows this article by Eckhart Henke also gives a wonderful review of Retronychia and its etiology. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication, evaluating delays to surgery for melanomas treated with Mohs micrographic surgery in the United States. First author, Cheyenne Chiraglu, senior author, John Carucci. Authors identified over 19,000 cases of melanomas treated either with Mohs or wide local excision, essentially split equally between melanoma in situ and invasive melanomas. The median time from diagnosis to treatment was 32 days. Among all cases, increasing age and non-Medicare government insurance were associated with a higher likelihood in delays beyond three months, while men were less likely to have such delays. Treatment at academic facilities was associated with a higher likelihood of delay beyond three months for MIS, but a lower likelihood of delay for PT2A or greater invasive disease. Trunk and extremity melanomas were less likely to have delays beyond three months than head and neck melanomas among the entire cohort. Authors noted that the proportions of cases treated in less than a month and one to three months after diagnosis were nearly identical, irrespective of whether Mohs or conventional excision were performed. They also noted that although coordination of sentinel lymph node biopsy has previously been cited as a potential logistical barrier for Mohs for melanoma, invasive melanomas undergoing sentinel lymph node biopsy did not have increased likelihood of treatment delays beyond three months. In summary, while more limited access to Mohs for melanomas is a potential issue, this does not affect time to treatment in accordance with published guidelines and also as compared with wide local excision. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the communication article, Retrospective Cohort Analysis of Sex Differences in American Indians and Alaskan Natives with Invasive Melanoma from the National Cancer Database by authors Jennifer Fernandez, Elizabeth Mata, Jennifer Erdrich, and Mohammed Faisal. Only 1% of American Indian and Alaska Native homelands have adequate access to dermatologic care, which may be perpetuating health disparities in this population. Compared to white individuals, American Indians and Alaska Natives with melanoma are more likely to present later and have worse melanoma-specific survival. In the general population, women have different tumor characteristics and better survival compared to men. As such, this study aimed to delineate the sex differences in tumor characteristics of American Indians and Alaska Natives with invasive melanoma. The NCDB found 429 cases approximately evenly distributed between men and women. Median age at diagnosis was higher for men, but notably, both sexes were diagnosed four to five years earlier than the general population. 
It was postulated by the authors that this is likely either due to earlier onset or more aggressive tumor behavior, which is supported by previous studies demonstrating uh, presentation at later stages when compared to white patients. In addition, this is unlikely secondary to earlier detection due to their often limited access to care. Men had significantly more tumors on the trunk, while women had significantly more on the lower extremities. No significant association of sex and stage was noted. However, nodular subtype was significantly more common in men, whereas acral indigenous was more common in women. No difference was noted in treatment or comorbidity score. The five-year overall survival was higher for women, and after adjusting for confounders, male sex independently increased mortality risk. Limitations of the study include lack of disease-specific survival and limited histologic subtype and comorbidity data. Notably, multiple initiatives and partnerships to address health disparities in American Indians and Alaska Natives have been implemented both nationally and locally, which will hopefully aid in improving outcomes for this population. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the communication, do indoor LED grow lights emit sufficient UV irradiation to pose an increased skin cancer risk by doctors DeCosma and Carol. Grow lights are lamps or bulbs designed to replicate the UVA and UVB spectrum of sun for indoor plant growth and are marketed online as desk lamps for plant owners and have contributed to the expansion of indoor vertical farming. While manufacturers claim these lights do not cause skin damage, this has never been studied. The inclusion of UVB in grow lights is especially concerning because UVB is estimated to cause more than 90% of all cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. In this study, the authors chose the top 10 LED lights on Amazon and measured the UVA and UVB irradiances. The median UVA and UVB irradiance of each grow light was used to determine the exposure time to achieve cumulative UV thresholds that have been previously reported to result in DNA damage in irradiated keratinocytes, which is 60 joules per centimeter squared for UVA and 4 millijoules per centimeter squared for UVB. The authors found that manufacturers may underestimate the risk of skin damage from LED grow lights, and use of these lights may increase risk of developing skin cancer due to significant exposure of UVB irradiation, which only requires a few hours to days of cumulative exposure to reach the threshold necessary for DNA damage of the skin. Use of grow lights with higher wattage in certain configurations may increase that risk even more. Given that these lamps and bulbs are often marketed to be used as desk lamps, additional research is warranted to investigate the in vivo risks of chronic exposure to LED grow lights. This is Christy Regula reviewing the communication, How We Do It, Articane for Infiltrative Anesthesia, by first author Haley Grubbs and senior author John Strawweimer. Lidocaine with epinephrine is the mainstay of local anesthesia for surgical dermatology. The situation occasionally occurs when despite infiltration with more than sufficient volumes of lidocaine with epinephrine, patients still complain of sharp pain. This is believed to potentially be due to a lower pH that makes lidocaine and bupivacaine less effective in areas of inflammation and those previously flooded with an anesthetic. Articaine is a medication with a lower pKa compared to lidocaine, with which theoretically leads to a greater concentration of free molecule, molecules in an acidic environment to act on neural axons and ultimately leads to increased efficacy. Extensive and deep cases or those involving special locations may also prove difficult to successfully anesthetize 
and might be explained by decreased efficacy of traditional anesthetics on larger myelinated nerves that have greater diffusion barriers. Articane has a thiophylline ring that helps to overcome this, rendering it more lipophilic and thus well-suited for use in areas including muscular fascia, tendons, and periosteum without the need for a dedicated nerve block. In the author's practice, they use Articane hydrochloride 4% with epinephrine 1 to 100,000, which comes in individual use sterile cartilages that are inserted into a self-aspirating syringe. The onset of action of Articane is two to four minutes with a duration of up to four hours. And there are two scenarios in which their clinic uses Articane over more traditional anesthesia types. The first is random unpredictable locations when proper anesthesia is not achieved with lidocaine or bupivacaine. The second is more predictable locations like the posterior scalp, occipital neck, and medial canthus. Due to Articane's 4% concentration and increased lipophilicity, the drug is used for infiltrative anesthesia in areas involving muscle and associated structures. The maximum recommended dose for Articane is seven mg per kg, which is the same for lidocaine. Articane, however, has a shorter half-life of 20 minutes because it is metabolized by both hepatic enzymes and plasma esterases. Overall, Articane might be a useful drug in our clinics for areas that were previously best suited for a nerve block, especially in this age of lidocaine shortage. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication, the purse string pulley stitch, enhancing the purse string with a simple modification by authors John Peters and Anis Malati. The authors describe a modification of the classic purse string closure to encourage more optimal linear orientation of the scar along skin tension lines and to reduce tension on the knot. I encourage listeners to read the excellent description of the technique in the journal if interested. But essentially, the technique is a purse string stitch that is modified by leaving one to three of the throws around the three o'clock position loose. Then at the corresponding positions around nine o'clock, additional loose throws are created after passing the suture through the loose loops on the other side around three o'clock. The entire suture is then pulled taut and the suture loops across the defect act as a pulley to pull the wound together in a more linear fashion. Overall, this was a very interesting repair modification. The authors state that the purse string pulley stitch is, as is a traditional purse string stitch, much smaller than a traditional linear repair and does not remove any excess tissue. However, this modification allows the closure to be oriented more along skin tension lines and to appear more like a linear closure. The pulley system created also puts less tension on the final knot. I'm eager to try this repair in my own practice, in for defects where I would have used the traditional purse string stitch. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication Advancing Hematoma Prevention in Osmodrosis Surgery, an improved surgical technique building upon traditional methods. Author Wen Sao Ho. This communication briefly describes changes the author has incorporated to a previously reported study entitled Effect of Quilting Sutures on Hematoma Formation After Liposuction with Dermal Curatage for Treatment of Axillary Hyperhidrosis, a Randomized Clinical Trial by Roe and Kay et al. The author cites the following additional measures, including the combination of careful elevation of the skin flap, ensuring a complete opening of the pocket for the cannula to traverse the subcutaneous layer, 
meticulous electrocauterization and compression with sterile gauze in suspected bleeding areas, the precise suturing of oozing sites using 5-0 polydiaxin on sutures, and the use of a Penrose drain as decreasing hematoma formation. These steps, when combined with the recommended quilting sutures and tie-over bandage from the reference study, helped to decrease hematoma formation from 5% in the aforementioned study to a risk of 0.5% presently. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. Hi everyone, my name is Karin Lal and I will be reviewing Who is Holding the Syringe? A Survey of Truth in Advertising Amongst Med Spas by Hogan et al. The purpose of this study was to provide a representative sample of the medical spa industry in the United States regarding experience and expertise amongst providers performing cosmetic procedures and the degree of oversight at medical spas offering these procedures. This was a descriptive study based on standardized telephone interviews performed by a secret shopper in Chicago and surrounding suburbs. According to AMSPA, 63% of member medical spas had non-doctor medical ownership. Among those medical spas owned by physicians, 80% were of the non-core aesthetic specialties, meaning medical specialties other than dermatology, plastic surgery, otorhinolaryngology, or ophthalmology. The delegation of cosmetic procedures can place patients at increased risk of adverse events. This is specifically documented for laser surgery for which state-to-state regulations vary considerably. The authors queried Google, Facebook, Yelp websites with search terms, which yielded 138 medical spas in the Chicago land area. Websites were reviewed and contact information, available services, and medical director information, if available, were recorded. A script regarding inquiry for new patient services was developed by authors. A secret shopper then contacted 138 medical spas through telephone and recorded responses from staff. Estheticians and registered nurses, or LPNs, performed cosmetic consultations most of the time at medical spas in the study. A supervising physician was available to conduct an in-person cosmetic consultation at 41.7% of surveyed medical spas. At most of the surveyed medical spas, cosmetic procedures were performed by estheticians and nurses, 66.9% and 52.8% respectively. A physician supervised or personally performed cosmetic procedures on-site in approximately half of the medical spas in the study. Among these medical directors and supervising physicians, only 69.3% were reported to be board-certified in a medical specialty. A medical director or supervising physician was always on site in only 16.5% of reported medical spas. In the event of a complication or unwanted side effect from a cosmetic procedure, 70% of surveyed medical spas notified a medical director supervising doctor. There is significant variation in the supervision and level of training among those performing cosmetic procedures at medical spas. The cosmetic patient is often unaware of the vast differences in education and supervision among medical spa providers. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing The Usefulness of Ultrasound in Varicose Venous Malformation, a series of 103 cases by first author Dr. Zhao Gong and last author Lishan Wang from China. So varicose hemangiomas are now called varicose venous malformations. They're a type of venous malformation that is a rare congenital vascular anomaly since at birth or early childhood, and it grows with the patient. It's usually unilateral and usually in the lower extremities and defined as a subcutaneous mass. There are only a few studies on ultrasound imaging of these varicose venous malformations, and thus the authors 
goal was to show the distinctive ultrasound feature of these anomalies and to improve the accuracy of clinical diagnosis um, with Doppler and ultrasound imaging. This is a retrospective review of 103 patients um, diagnosed with a varicose venous malformation and most presented as the mobile, solitary, or multiple hyperkeratotic plaques or nodules. And further findings, they found that on ultrasound, 98% of lesions showed subcutaneous fat infiltration. Um, and then another, about 5%, were in the, only in the subcutaneous layer with no skin involvement. Most of the lesions were hyperechoic on ultrasound, and calcifications were present in um, 5%, 5.7%, and invisible vessels in 10.7% of cases. Interestingly, previous reports have shown that these varicose venous malformations are circumcised, manually lobulated, and subcutaneous masses. However, on, in this study, they found that these lesions were in the dermal and subcutaneous layer with only about 4.9% in the subcutaneous layer. Furthermore, the varicose venous malformations were found to be variable solid echinodensity with 96.1% being hypoechoic and 1.2% being hypoechoic. Thus, in this study, hopefully the authors have demonstrated clinical and ultrasound diagnosis. They've shown that there's a heterogeneous hyperagonicity as a solid mass with ill-defined margins on ultrasound, low vessel density, and venous flow on color Doppler. And these can help physicians make a more accurate diagnosis of this rare venous anomaly. This is Ardalan Menokhede discussing the manuscript Sclerotherapy Off the Lower Extremities, a single-center retrospective study of veins treated on the dorsal hands and chest. This is a manuscript from Dr. Daniel Friedman and his group. I'd like to highlight that Dr. Friedman is an assistant editor of our journal. The premise from this, of this manuscript is that few studies have evaluated the safety and efficacy of treatment of cosmetic dorsal hand and chest or breast veins. And Dr. Friedman's practice was evaluated from January 2014 to April 2023 in a retrospective review to specifically look at results of foam sclerotherapy specifically in the dorsal hand and chest veins. In terms of background, the authors do discuss the detail of both the mechanism of action and describe in detail the injection techniques, whether it be sodium tetradecal sulfate or STS or polydocanol in the manuscript. The results are highlighted in tables one and two, and there are very striking before and after results in figure one and two of the manuscript. In short, there were 55 patients, the majority female with one male, both groups, dorsal hands and the chest, were primarily treated with foam concentrations of about 0.2% STS or 0.5% polydocanol. The mean age was 55.8. The mean number of sessions for the dorsal hand was around 1.5 and the chest 1.6. The rate of coagulum formation across all sessions in the dorsal hands and chest was 15.2 and 3% respectively. And respect, with respect to side effects, they rarely saw vein induration, edema, 
post-sclerotherapy hyperpigmentation or persistent erythema, and no cases of superficial venous thrombophlebitis, erosion, telangiectatic matting, or neurological side effects were shown. And there was significant clinical improvement at the three-month follow-up. So in short, we can conclude from this manuscript that foam sclerotherapy of the dorsal hand and chest veins with detergent sclerosing agents is safe and useful and effective with minimal self-limited adverse events. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing the original article, Ethanol Embolotherapy for Cutaneous Erythema of High-Flow Vascular Malformations in the Head and Neck by first author Jingwei Zhao and lead author Zhao Zilin out of China. This paper reviews ethanol embolization of arterial venous malformation, or AVMs. AVMs are aggressive congenital high-flow vascular lesions in which the feeding artery and draining vein are connected through fistulas. Half of them occur in the head and neck and may cause swelling, ulceration, bleeding, and disfigurement. AVMs are rare and dangerous, and delayed assessment and treatment can lead to aggravation of the disease, including hemorrhage and heart failure. Ethanol embolization, compared with other embolic agents, can completely destroy vascular cells and prevent reperfusion, achieving excellent therapeutic effects without recanalization. This paper is a retrospective case series of 14 patients treated by expert injectors using radiologic tools to visualize the precise locations of the fistulas to embolize. The details of the procedure are well described in the text. In 14 patients, 21 sessions were performed. One patient was not treated with absolute ethanol because of his young age. Four patients underwent adjunctive bleomycin therapy. Overall, the therapy was effective and improvement in clinical symptoms and patient appearance was observed in all patients. No major complications occurred. Five patients did present with blistering or necrosis, which did heal within two months. Patients were assessed for two things. Number one, specifically cosmetic outcome, the degree of redness reduction, and they used an open source image processing software to assess that erythema. Second, patients were assessed for degree of AVM devascularization, and figure one is a nice visualization of the before and after. Again, all patients had improvement. In the discussion, the authors remind us that AVMs should be managed without delay, Aesthetic considerations should be taken into account, and they point out that the cutaneous erythema of AVM is caused by a dilatation of superficial microvessels, which can be treated in other ways, but they believe that embolization is the most effective treatment. In conclusion, the authors emphasize expert technique and precision under careful monitoring are required to do this treatment. They point out the limitations that this is a limited number of patients and a retrospective study. And finally, they comment that embolic vascular therapy may become a potential treatment for erythema resulting from other causes of cutaneous vascular dilation. This is Isabella Jones reviewing botulinum toxin for scalp conditions, a systematic review by Nguyen and Tosti. After conducting a literature review using PRISMA guidelines, the authors found 24 studies that reported data on 309 patients for whom botulinum toxin was used to treat a scalp condition. I will briefly review their summary for each condition. 
For androgenetic alopecia, they found six trials involving 199 patients treated with botulinum A. All studies showed improvement in hair counts, but some studies were combined with their use of minoxidil and finasteride. For telogen effluvium, 12 patients showed improvement after one session of 150 units of botulinum A. For alopecia areata, a seven-patient study showed no clinical effect. For folliculitis to calvins, a four-patient case series with botulinum toxin A using 60 to 150 units showed some decreased inflammation and hair regrowth. For cephalalgia alopecia, which histologically appears like alopecia areata, there were three cases where botulinum A to the affected area of pain and alopecia demonstrated improvement in hair growth and scalp pain. For filler-induced alopecia, there was one case report using botulinum in conjunction with hyaluronidase, and the authors think the role of botulinum in this case to be doubtful. For craniofacial hyperhidrosis, the authors found five studies using botulinum A for 53 patients and botulinum B for 38 patients. Both have shown significant improvement, but the authors note that botulinum B may be preferred over botulinum A for craniofacial hyperhidrosis because it can more selectively target the autonomic nervous system over the motor system, reducing the risk of temporary muscle weakness. For gustatory hyperhidrosis, one patient was treated on the face and scalp successfully with 150 units of botulinum toxin A. For hyperseborrhea, there was one randomized double-blind trial of 25 patients treated with 50 to 65 units of botulinum toxin A compared to no more saline. Those that were treated with botulinum toxin had significant reduction in scalp sebum secretion that lasted for three months. For linear scleroderma, two case reports of patients with Encuptisarp and one with Peri-Romberg were treated with 25 to 50 units of botulinum toxin A, which reduced headache intensity in both patients. For scalp dysesthesia, one patient with diffuse scalp pain and another with multiple painful pyeloliomyomas noted decrease in pain after botulinum toxin A. Overall, the quality of evidence for the use of botulinum toxin for scalp conditions is highly variable and reliant on small observational studies. Of all the scalp conditions, they found that androgenetic alopecia, hyperseborrhea, and craniofacial hyperhidrosis had the most robust data supporting the clinical efficacy of botulinum toxin. The mechanism of botulinum toxin in improving various scalp conditions is likely related to scalp muscle relaxation, leading to improved perfusion by reducing pressure on scalp blood vessels. They conclude that botulinum toxin may be a therapeutic option for patients, but it is expensive and additional studies are needed. This is Isabella Jones reviewing 
improvement of lichen planus pigmentosus-like drug reaction utilizing a combination of the fractionated 1515 nanometer erbium-doped fiber laser and topical cystiamine cream by Murray and Friedman. A 70-year-old woman presented with a three-year history of hyperpigmented patches on the face and neck. Biopsy and clinical history confirmed a diagnosis of lichen planus pigmentosus-like drug reaction. She failed drug discontinuation, topical steroids, tacrolimus, hydroquinone, and oral doxycycline. The authors used a fractionated 1550 nanometer erbium-doped fiber laser with settings of 8 to 13 millijoules per microscopic treatment zone, 14% coverage, and 8 passes. The patient underwent five treatments spaced four to six weeks apart, followed by three treatments spaced three to six months apart. The patient was also treated with cystiamine 5% cream once daily to the affected areas for six months, followed by maintenance therapy two times weekly. They report the patient had about 80% improvement in her pigment prior to her eighth session of laser, which they show in a picture. The authors believe the settings they chose for the laser targeted pigment in the epidermis and papillary dermis at a depth of 500 to 634 microns. In addition, cystoamine inhibition inhibits key enzymes in melanogenesis, which they believe also had a role in improving the patient. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Curran Lal and I will be reviewing how we do it, the role of infrared thermography as a supportive technique in the treatment of hyperhidrosis. Infrared thermography is a technique that converts infrared radiation emitted by any object into geographical record of quantifiable temperature with a visible color scale. Often in dermatology, I've used this with various radiofrequency treatments for skin tightening. It is a non-invasive method and has been shown to help diagnose and manage certain conditions such as psoriasis, HS, and acne. This group in particular uses this technology called IRT, infrared thermography, after performing nerve blocks prior to hyperhidrosis treatment with botulinum toxin in the hands to see the efficacy of their nerve blocks. Because after nerve blocks, there's vasodilation, which leads to increase in temperature in the area being treated. And using IRT, you can identify what areas are more thermally active or vasodilated that have been um, treated with a nerve block appropriately as opposed to areas that have not that may require additional treatment with uh, nerve blocks before treatment with neuromodulator toxin. This is a very safe, non-invasive technology that can also be used after patients have had sympathectomy for hyperhidrosis as well to assess areas for compensatory hyperhidrosis. This may be an effective tool of other ways of addressing certain complications um, or mechanisms uh, that can be used in soft tissue augmentation. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reporting on successful management of extensive cruciform facial scarring secondary to patch syndrome with a combination of medical and surgical treatments by first author Allison Yan and last author Benjamin Kaffenberger. So patch syndrome is the trio of pyderma gangrenosum, acne, and hydronitis superativa. And the authors report a case of PASH syndrome where they used high dose, high frequency infliximab and met, uh, surgical management of scars to improve facial scarring secondary to this inflammatory condition. So this is a 35-year-old man, history of Crohn's and PASH. 
He had failed adalimumab, which he developed antibodies, and supposedly infliximab, which had lost efficacy. And also noted azathioprine and prednisone were ineffective. And thus, a high-dose, high-frequency infliximab infusion of 10 mg per kg every four weeks um, was performed, including staged deroofing procedures that included deroofing with a the tract with 15 blade, electrocyclation curatage, and dermabrasion, and no pathology was reported. A year and a half later, the patient had significant improvement in the scars and quality of life. So, Patch syndrome is a very rare autoimmune condition that can cause scarring. The concern with this is pathology due to the pyoderma gangrenosum. This case illustrates that there can be improvement in inflammation and scarring using the high-dose, high-frequency infliximab infusions, as well as dermabrasion and deroofing procedures, and no pathology was seen. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing How We Do It a single center's approach for optimal analgesia, hemostasis, and technique during dermal microcoring by first author Ariel Eber and lead author Michael Kaminer. Dermal microcoring removes excess skin using microcores via hollow hypodermic needles to allow scarless skin tightening and wrinkle improvement. The FDA-approved device is manufactured by Citrellus Biosystems. This paper reviews the author's technique to optimize safety and efficacy. Patient selection is crucial. Patients with severe wrinkles and laxity are not optimal candidates, while patients with moderate skin laxity, with or without moderate lines and wrinkles, are optimal candidates. The authors review in detail their anesthesia and hemostasis, achieved with injectable 1% lidocaine with epi. They emphasize the importance of maintaining an even, non-overlapping grid pattern, if overlapping occurs and two cores merge, the wound size exceeds the threshold required to avoid scarring. If the tubing that extends from the device touches the skin, it can shift the needles, resulting in an uneven pattern and merging of cores. So take care to turn the handpiece in such a way that the tubing does not touch the patient. I refer you to the article for some nice photographs. Countertraction and stabilization is crucial, including counterpressure intraorally and using a second or third assistant to stretch skin. Post-care includes topical petrolatum, oral antivirals, and oral antibiotics for five to seven days. In conclusion, if you are introducing this procedure into your practice, I would encourage you to pull this article for treatment pearls. This is Ardalan Minokata discussing the manuscript Tumescent Anesthesia with a mean dose of 81 milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine, along with the associated commentary. The initial manuscript is from Dr. Patrick Lillis in Loveland, Colorado, whose premise is that there have been arguments over the safe maximal dose of lidocaine administration in tumescent anesthesia for liposuction. The author uses doses higher than the gold standard we learn about from our literature, 55 milligrams per kilogram. He provides evidence in the manuscript looking at serum lidocaine levels from patients who received greater than or equal to 70 milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine during administration of tumescent anesthesia before liposuction. Of note, this evidence comes from 1997. There are 22 patients from a period of under three months and this is the first time the results are being published, but the results haven't presented at meetings in the past. 
The mean dose was 81 milligrams per kilogram in this small cohort. The peak serum lidocaine levels were 1.3 to 4.1 milligrams per milliliter with an average of 2.4. And table one shows examples of peak levels. Timing of the peak range from three to 16 hours with an average of nine hours. None of the tested patients demonstrated any clinical signs or symptoms of lidocaine toxicity. And although this group was small in N of 22, the author highlights that this carefully tested group was only a small fraction of over 1,100 consecutive patients who safely received 50 milligrams per kilogram or more of lidocaine over a four-year period from 1993 in his practice, highlighted in Table 2. There were no hospitalizations or deaths in the large cohort. Next, I'll move to the commentary from our esteemed editor-in-chief, Dr. Coleman, who is a member of the liposuction community. He highlights that the work presented in the manuscript is work that many of and many of the dermatologists in the liposuction had been long aware of, yet he does highlight that knowledge of this experiment did affect clinical behavior in many practices. In particular, he does say that he has never used a dose of 55 milligrams per kilogram or higher, but does feel comfortable at this dose because he knows that it's not an absolute limit and that exceeding it would be likely safe. He does highlight a manuscript from Dr. Klein that there have been systemic anesthetic issues in combination with medications like sertraline or fluorazepam, which may affect safe doses of lidocaine through hepatic isoenzyme mechanisms that can reduce lidocaine clearance. So physicians performing liposuction should be aware of this. Welcome to Beyond the Digest, offering bonus content covering surgical articles in dermatologic literature outside the peer-reviewed journal, Dermatologic Surgery. Reference the episode description for publication details of the content covered. This is Yesel Kim, and I'll be reviewing a research letter in October's JAD, Underuse of Sentinel Lymph Node Biopsy for Early Stage Melanoma by first author Ahmad Rajay and Guihang Wan, and senior author Yevgeny Semenov. NCCN guidelines recommend offering sentinel lymph node biopsies to patients with stage 1b to 2c melanomas. These authors sought to identify factors associated with sentinel lymph node biopsy non-completion, the documented rationales for non-completion, and impact on survival. 1,040 patients at Mass General Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute with melanomas greater than one millimeters in thickness were identified. Reasons for non-completion were determined by chart review and classified into three categories advanced age and or comorbidities, patients deferral, and unknown. Patients greater than or equal to 80 years of age at diagnosis without a documented reason for non-completion were determined to be due to advanced age slash comorbidities. Authors also investigated the downstream impact of sentinel lymph node biopsy on recurrence-free survival and overall survival. Authors found that 25% of eligible patients did not undergo sentinel lymph node biopsies. Of these patients, 65% were due to age or comorbidities such as cancer, chronic pulmonary disease, or peripheral vascular disease. 
13% of patients deferred biopsy after discussion. Authors were unable to identify reasons for sentinel lymph node biopsy non-completion for the remaining 23% of patients. Increased age, lack of insurance, and lenticomalina histology were associated with increased odds of sentinel lymph node biopsy non-completion. Sentinel lymph node biopsy non-completion was associated with both worsened recurrence-free survival and worse overall survival. In conclusion, this study found that sentinel lymph node biopsies for melanomas were underutilized at these two large cancer centers. Most decisions not to proceed were due to patients' age and or comorbidities. Self-patient pay patients were more likely not to undergo a sentinel lymph node biopsy. This is Kay Matosko and I'll be reviewing rates of second tumor, metastasis, and death from cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in patients with and without transplant-associated immunosuppression out of the September issue of JAMA Dermatology. Organ transplant recipients have a very high risk of developing SCC and seem to have a greater risk of metastasis from SCC than immunocompetent patients. Authors studied the occurrence of a second SCC, metastasis, and death from cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in non-organ transplant recipients and organ transplant recipients using population-based data from the National Cancer Registry of Norway from 1968 through 2020. The study was comprised of 1,208 organ transplant recipients and over 40,000 non-organ transplant recipients. The rate of second cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma per 1,000 per person years was 30.9 in non-organ transplant recipients and 250 in organ transplant recipients, with organ transplant recipients having a 4.3-fold increased rate in the adjusted analysis. Death from cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma was observed in 1.1% of non-organ transplant recipients and 3.3% in organ transplant recipients. The rate of death from SCC per 1,000 person years was 1.7 in non-organ transplant recipients and 5.4 in organ transplant recipients, with organ transplant recipients having a 5.5-fold increased rate on the adjusted analysis. Overall, this study further showed that organ transplant recipients have a higher rate of second SCC, metastasis, and death from cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma than non-organ transplant recipients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. This is Kim Tosco, and I'll be reviewing health literacy screening tools to identify patients at risk of misunderstanding wound care instructions after dermatologic surgery from the October issue of JAD. This study aimed to elucidate the relationship between health literacy and understanding of postoperative instructions in patients undergoing Mohs micrographic surgery as a proxy for dermatologic procedure patients at large. In this study, participants responded to the question, how often do you have someone help you read hospital materials and were assessed using the newest vital sign, a validated measure of health literacy. They were provided with verbal and written wound care instructions. Then they were presented with a hypothetical patient scenario and asked three questions regarding wound care for the hypothetical patient. Patients were allowed to consult their written instructions. 57.1% of patients were over 70 years old 45.9% had low health literacy, and 66% did not understand at least one part of their wound care instructions. 
Those over 70 years old were more likely to answer questions about wound care incorrectly and were more likely to have low health literacy. Furthermore, those with low health literacy more frequently responded incorrectly to wound care questions. The findings demonstrate that most Mohs micrographic surgery patients did not comprehend part of their care instructions. Elderly patients were more likely to have low health literacy. Newest vital sign scores used to, de to determine health literacy successfully identified patients at risk of misunderstanding instructions regardless of their age. This is Tara Jennings, and I will be reviewing the research letter, Gender Diversity of Mohs Micrographic Surgery Fellows and Program Directors in the U.S. by Sophie Gart and senior author Ashley Wysong. This was a cross-sectional study created to examine trends in the percentage of females comprising Mohs Micrographic Surgery matriculants and program directors for the past two decades. The genders of the program directors and fellows were retrieved from the ACMS database between 1996 and 2022 and the ACGME database between 2004 and 2021. The genders were then confirmed in the NPI registry. The Mann-Kendall test was used to assess for overall change in the percentage of female representation within each group and to assess trends between year and percentage of female representation within each group. The study showed that the number of female Mohs Micrographic Surgery ACMS fellows increased from 24% in 1996 to 42% in 2021. The female ACJME fellows totaled 20 in 2004 and 78 in 2021, ranging between 27 to 56% in any given year. The female program directors also increased from 3% in 1996 to 28% in 2021. This ranged between 3 and 31% during the study period. The Mann-Kendall test demonstrated a significant positive trend between the percentage of female representation and year within all groups. This study shows the significant demographic shift for women in Mohs Micrographic Surgery Fellowship and PD roles. The authors make an interesting point that previous studies demonstrated that females in leadership positions positively correlates with more females in faculty positions. Overall, this cross-sectional study was encouraging and provides an interesting snapshot of how gender diversity in the field of Mohs Micrographic Surgery has changed over time. This is Tara Jennings, and I will be reviewing the original investigation, Novel 1726 Nanometer Laser Demonstrates Durable Therapeutic Outcomes and Tolerability for Moderate to Severe Acne Across Skin Types, by first author Macreen Alexaitis and last author Jeffrey Dover. The traditional pharmacologic algorithm for acne includes various topical and oral therapeutics, while lasers remain absent from the AED's first and second line acne treatment options. Lasers and energy-based devices have been tested, but reproducible and durable outcomes in moderate to severe acne has been lacking. Previous studies have shown that light may target sebaceous glands by selective photothermolysis. Wavelengths of 532, 585 to 595, and 1450 nanometers have been applied to acne, but they were not preferentially absorbed by sebaceous glands over water, hemoglobin, or melanin. The absorption spectra of sebum and water has been measured in the near-infrared region, with a narrow band of selective absorption in the sebum over water peaking at 1726 nanometers. 
In this study, a novel 1726 nanometer laser was developed, optimized, and applied to determine tolerability, therapeutic outcomes, and durability of the responses in moderate to severe acne across skin types 2 to 6. This was a prospective, open-label, single-arm, investigational device exemption-approved study of 104 subjects with moderate to severe facial acne in Fitzpatrick skin types ranging from type 2 to type 6. Of note, no patients had been on isotretinoin therapy previously. All patients received a 30-day washout from their previous acne medications, followed by baseline standardized digital photographs. Three laser treatments were administered at three-week intervals. Details on the laser energy, pulse duration, and cooling protocol are detailed in the article. Follow-up visits were at four weeks, 12 weeks, and 26 weeks after the third laser treatment. Photographs were taken at all follow-up visits. Three independent expert dermatologist graders assessed and scored acne severity per subject using the investigator's global assessment tool. The results of this study showed that following the final laser treatment, greater than or equal to 50% reduction in active acne inflammatory lesions was 32.6% at the four-week follow-up, 79.8% at the 12-week follow-up, and 87.3% at the 26-week follow-up. The percentage of subjects clear or almost clear increased from 0% at baseline to 9% at four weeks, 36% at 12 weeks, and 41.8% at 26 weeks. There were no serious adverse events observed related to device or protocol, and treatments were well tolerated, requiring no anesthetic. Therapeutic outcomes and discomfort were similar across all Fitzpatrick skin types. In summary, this study demonstrates the novel 1726 nanometer laser is well tolerated with durable progressive post-treatment improvement to at least 26 weeks for moderate to severe acne across, all, across the Fitzpatrick skin type studied here. The large limitation in the study includes a lack of control group. It is also important to note that we cannot discount the out-of-pocket costs for laser device treatment, and head-to-head -head trials with oral or topical therapeutics for moderate to severe acne are an appropriate next step. This is Yesel Kim, and I'll be summarizing a review in October's edition of the JAD, Understanding Melanoma in Situ, Lentigo Malignant Surgical Treatment Terminology and Guideline Adherence, a Targeted Review, by first author Tatiana Abrantes and senior author Thomas Minor. The authors aim to comprehensively define and describe the national guideline recommended surgical techniques used to treat melanoma in situ and lentigo maligna to help clarify and standardize the techniques to ensure compliance with national guidelines. The authors executed a targeted literature review of articles from 1990 to 2022 that discussed a national guideline recommended surgical techniques of wide local excision, MOS, modified MOS, and stage excision or slow MOS for lentigo maligna. Wide local excision with standard vertical bread loaf sections has many disadvantages, particularly for lentigo maligna of the head and neck where there is an increased risk for amelanotic spread and 2-20% to risk for finding further invasive disease. Vertical bread loaf sectioning examines only about 1% of the surgical margin, and the vast majority of the peripheral margin is not being evaluated.
Some other disadvantages include the delay between excision and pathology results, and there's a risk that repairs need to be taken down to take an additional margin on a separate date. And traditional MOS has been increasingly used for lentigo malignas. Controversies with MOS for lentigo maligna arises in the use of guideline recommended margins and routine use of sending final peripheral margin for permanent vertical on FOSS analysis after the frozen sections have been de deemed clear by MOS surgeons. The use of frozen sections rather than permanent sections also creates controversy on what is deemed melanocytic hyperplasia of sun-damaged skin versus true lentigo maligna. To mitigate this, immunostaining is commonly used in combination with MOS for lentigo maligna to help identify abnormal architectural features. Modified MOS surgery is a cylindrical excision rather than a bowl-like excision configuration with traditional MOS. First, a central debulk is removed, but it's removed in a cylindrical configuration down to fascia or deep fat. Next, an additional margin of tissue is circumferentially removed from the periphery of the debulk defect, and this is evaluated by frozen section with vertical on FOSS sectioning, avoiding the oblique tissue orientation with traditional MOS and traditional bread loaf limited sectioning by Y local excision. Stage excision or slow MOS with the ONFOS protocol is when permanent vertical ONFOS sectioning is used on the peripheral margin rather than frozen sections. Several advantages include optimal tissue conservation and margin control and histological evaluation done with permanent sections. A major disadvantage is that the surgery occurs in multiple sessions over multiple days. Regardless of the technique employed, key national guideline recommendations include permanent section analysis of the central debulking specimen to appropriately stage potential invasive cutaneous melanoma. If invasive cutaneous melanoma is identified on a peripheral section intraoperatively, the tissue should be submitted for permanent section analysis. A measured margin of 0.5 to 1 centimeter around the visible lesion should be obtained, although margins may be narrower to accommodate function and or anatomic location when a 0.5 centimeter margin cannot be taken. And depth of excision is recommended to the fascia or deep fat when there are anatomic restrictions. My name is Amy Green and I will be reviewing the research letter entitled Impact of Adjuvant Radiation Therapy on Survival and Recurrence in Patients with Stage 1 to 3 Merkel Cell Carcinoma, a retrospective study of 312 patients by Dr. Padier and senior author Dr. Samimi. Merkel cell carcinoma is very aggressive cutaneous malignancy and treatment recommendations include Adjuvant radiation therapy includes surgery plus adjuvant radiation therapy for most tumors of AJCC stage 1 through 3, along with potential lymph node dissection and or adjuvant radiation therapy of the lymph node area in case of regional disease. 
The impact of adjuvant radiation therapy on outcomes, however, have remained controversial. So these authors used a previously reported French cohort and retrospectively compared outcomes in 86 patients who had undergone only surgery versus 226 patients who had undergone surgery and adjuvant radiation therapy. The baseline characteristics of the 312 patients can be seen in Table 1. Patients who have received adjuvant radiation therapy were significantly younger than and had more frequently undergone sentinel lymph node biopsy. The median time between surgery and adjuvant radiation therapy was 8.5 weeks. Patients who had underwent adjuvant radiation therapy had a significantly longer recurrence-free survival compared to the surgery-only group. On multivariate analysis, adjuvant radiation therapy was independently associated with reduced risk of disease recurrence and reduced risk of death due to Merkel cell. Although patients receiving adjuvant radiation therapy had significantly increased local recurrence-free survival and regional recurrence-free survival, it did not impact in-transit metastasis or distant metastasis-free survival. The pattern of recurrence according to the site of adjuvant radiation therapy and nodal status at baseline are provided in the supplementary tables 4 and 5 if you're interested in that. Interestingly, adjuvant radiation therapy to the tumor bed alone significantly increased local recurrence-free survival and regional recurrence-free survival in patients who did not receive a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Adjuvant radiation therapy to the lymph node, to the draining lymph node basin only, increased local recurrence-free survival in patients also who didn't undergo sentinel lymph node biopsy. This study showed that adjuvant radiation therapy was independently associated with increased local and regional recurrence-free survival, but also disease-specific survival, despite no evidence of impact on distant metastasis. The authors hypothesized this could be due to the fact that local regional disease can be bulky and fatal even in the absence of distant metastasis. There are limitations to this study, and they include its retrospective nature, so the groups were unequal at baseline, with the group receiving adjuvant radiation therapy being significantly younger and more likely to have undergone sentinel lymph node biopsy. 7% of the patients in the surgery-only group had recurrent disease within eight weeks of surgery, which could suggest more aggressive disease. And lastly, the management of Merkel cell carcinoma is heterogeneous, and there's various adjuvant radiation protocols and low rates of sentinel lymph node biopsy in this specific cohort. But despite these, this study does suggest that adjuvant radiation therapy is associated with improved outcomes in Merkel cell carcinoma. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the research letter entitled UV-Induced Fluorescent Dermoscopy for Biopsy Site Identification Prior to Dermatologic Surgery, a Retrospective Study. So as we all know, biopsy site identification is paramount to reducing wrong site surgery. Photographs, anatomy maps, and reflectance confocal microscopy have been employed to help with this issue. So these authors describe the use of UV-fluorescent dermoscopy to assess the surgical site prior to Mohs micrographic surgery as an additional tool to help with site identification. This was an observational study conducted between October of 2022 and January of 2023. Biopsy sites were visualized clinically with polarized dermoscopy as well as UV fluorescent dermoscopy. Consecutive biopsies with no clinically evident tumor were selected and photographed with both the polarized dermoscopy and UV fluorescent dermoscopy. Images were then presented to four board certified Mohs surgeons and an expert dermoscopist, and participants were asked to decide if they could identify the biopsy site and their confidence levels were assessed. 
Surgical site was more apparent with ultraviolet fluorescent dermoscopy versus polarized dermoscopy, so 93% versus 72%, and it appeared darker than the surrounding skin. The surgical site could be identified only with ultraviolet fluorescent dermoscopy in 22 cases, only with polarized dermoscopy in one case, and then there was concordant evaluation. Either they could identify, be identified by both, or you couldn't identify the biopsy site with either method in 77 cases. So the authors suggest that this is an efficient, inexpensive step that could improve surgical site identification and increase confidence. The hypothesis is that ultraviolet fluorescent dermoscopy darkening is caused by inflammation and hypervascularity after a biopsy. Limitations to the study include the small sample size and the use of just dermoscopy images, so not clinical images as well. They also did not account for time since the biopsy, which may alter the ability to identify the biopsy site with ultraviolet fluorescent dermoscopy. At this point, not all dermatoscopes are equipped with this function, but I did think that this was a useful tool to have in our arsenal and may help identify challenging biopsy sites. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the research letter entitled Surgical Site Infection Rates Following Mohs Micrographic Surgery by Body Site, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Dr. Chen and Dr. Jennifer Powers. Overall, Mohs surgery is known to have overall low rates of surgical site infection, estimated as low as 2%. However, surgical site infection rates for specific closure techniques and body sites are suspected to be substantially higher. However, these remain poorly quantified. The aim of the systemic review is to provide a quantitative analysis of currently published reports on surgical site infection rates across different closure techniques with stratification by body site. A systematic search of multiple databases was performed. A random effect model meta-analysis was used to pool surgical site rates and confidence intervals based on closure types and stratification to the body site. A total of 27 studies were included, ranging from 1993 to 2018. In total, there were 2,252 flap and graft closures, 3,818 primary closures, 1434 secondary intention healing cases. Significant difference was found between body sites with lower extremities having the highest surgical site infection rates across all closure types. This systemic review suggests that flaps and grafts have a higher surgical site infection rates than other closures and that lower extremities have the highest surgical site infection rates regardless of the closure type. Therefore, surgeons may want to consider individualizing sterility practices such as sterile gloves, single-use instruments, and antibiotic prophylaxis based on closure type, body site, and other patient characteristics. This is Elizabeth Kiesick reviewing the research letter entitled Quantifying Perioperative Anxiety in Mohs Micrographic Surgery, a single-center prospective case series written by Caitlin O'Connell and Dr. Leonard Goldberg. The article begins by describing that anxiety during Mohs surgery has been linked to decreased quality of life and increased levels of pain. Several intraoperative interventions have been proposed previously, including music, stress ball, and hand-holding. 
While anxiety has been tracked before and after most surgery, the best time to intervene during the surgical day remains unknown. In this single-center prospective case series study, authors measured anxiety levels prior to, during, and immediately after most surgery with the goal of identifying ideal time points for future interventions. 47 adults undergoing most surgery were included. Measures included physiological status with the mean arterial, arterial blood pressure and heart rate, state trait anxiety inventory, visual analog scales for both cancer anxiety and scar anxiety. Physiological analysis showed small decreases, but these were not sig- clinically significant as heart rate and blood pressure remained within the normal physiological ranges. The median state anxiety AIS scores decreased overall with preoperative median of 29. Visual analog scales for cancer and scar anxiety correlated with an initial decrease preoperatively to stage one, then rising to a peak after stage three, which was the maximum stages in the study, and then falling after postoperatively. The study was limited by a small sample size. These results suggest that anxiety based on the visual analog scale for cancer and scar anxiety decreases preoperatively to postoperatively and reveals an increase in scar anxiety after stage three. This study is the first to quantify anxiety at progressing stages of Mohs surgery. Based on this, these findings, interventions targeting anxiety would likely be best performed preoperatively, especially for overall anxiety, and between the last stage of Mohs surgery and the repair, especially targeting scar-related anxiety. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the original article in the JAD titled Defining and Quantifying Histopathologic Risk Factors for Regional and Distant Metastases in a Large Cohort of Vulvar Squamous Cell Carcinomas by first author Dr. Charaglu and senior author Dr. Carucci. The article begins by providing the background that vulvar squamous cell carcinoma is a rare tumor with a relatively good prognosis when treated at a localized stage. However, once regional and distant metastases occur, vulvar squamous cell carcinoma can be rapidly fatal. Thus, it is important to identify tumor prognostic features so that high-risk cases can be prioritized for further diagnostic workup and treatment. However, at this time, there's limited data that exists on the extent of risk factors associated with various histologic pathic factors at this time. The aim of the study was to estimate estimate the risk of regional and distant metastases at presentation and sentinel lymph node status for vulvar carcinoma based on histopathologic characteristics. This was a retrospective cohort study of 15,188 
2,500 adults squamous cell cases from the National Cancer Database diagnosed between 2012 and 2019. Authors provided specific estimates of risk for clinically positive nodes and metastatic disease at presentation and sentinel lymph node positivity according to tumor size, moderate and poor tumor differentiation, and lymph vascular invasion. These histologic features were all significantly associated with the tested clinical outcomes in multivariable analysis. Moderate and poor differentiation, as well as lymphovascular invasion, were all associated with significantly poor, poorer overall outcome in survival. Therefore, our th authors conclude that there is an association of histopathologic characteristics of vulvar vulvar squamous cell carcinoma with clinically important outcomes. These data may provide individualized information when discussing diagnostic and treatment recommendations, particularly regarding sentinel lymph node biopsies. They also may help guide further staging and risk stratification efforts for vulvar carcinoma. I am Karin Lal, and I am reviewing the suitability of a large particle hyaluronic acid filler for the treatment of temporal hollowing by Nicholas et al. This was a prospective open-label single-label cohort clinical trial with the objective being to investigate the safety and efficacy of HAV for the treatment of temporal hollows. They used HAV, also known as Restylane Volime, which has a large gel particle size and has not been evaluated for temporal hollowing. 26 women who presented with bilateral temporal hollows at baseline were recruited. All subjects received treatment with HAV and were observed at four to five in-person visits over 16 weeks. Subjective and objective measures of safety and efficacy parameters were collected through two- and three-dimensional imagery, questionnaires, scales, and adverse event diaries. Two treatment sessions were allowed, with the second being for touch-ups. Needle technique deep on bone was used for injection. Average amount of filler used per side per patient was 1.7 ml. Following optimal correction, all subjects 100% displayed improvement in their global aesthetic appearance, and 25 of 26 subjects displayed one great improvement on temporal volume scale. Subject satisfaction was high with 91.3% of subjects being satisfied with the appearance of temporal regions following optimal correction. No positive aspiration was noted during injections. This study proves deep injections are safe when done with the appropriate anatomical consideration and that high gel caliber HA filler provides noticeable improvement of temporal hollowing in females. I see a lot of male patients that come in for temporal filler and this product was not studied in men. This was the biggest limitation of this study. I am Karen Lal, and I will be reviewing minimally invasive gender-affirming procedure exposure and training outcome of a resident-reported survey. The prevalence of transgender patients is increasing, and often as dermatologists, we are among the first to provide care for these patients. Gender-affirming care procedures are not formally taught in residency education, nor is gender-affirming care. An anonymous cross-sectional electronic survey was sent to all U.S. Dermatology Residency Program coordinators to be distributed to approximately 1,200 residents. Of those, 230 residents responded to the survey with a response rate of 18%. The most common minimally invasive gender-affirming procedures observed during residency included laser hair removal in 39% of residents and soft tissue augmentation in 18% of residents. 72% of residents reported never performing any procedure during residency, with 93% reporting interest in receiving more formal education during their training regarding these procedures. 24% of residents reported never receiving education regarding lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning care during training. 
program size, type, whether university or community-based, and presence of subspecialized gender affirmation clinic did not impact resident comfort or familiarity with gender-affirming care. This study shows that residents are interested in learning more about these types of procedures and would benefit from on-site additional training. The sample size, however, of respondents was low and not generalizable. Hello, I am Curran Lal, and I will be reviewing complications, treatment, and outcomes of self-injecting substances into the face, a systematic review by Tripathi et al. Over the past few years, injectables have become widely available to consumers through various online outlets. In addition, there are many online tutorials on injection technique. The objective of this systematic review was to analyze complications, treatments, and outcomes associated with self-injecting fillers into the face. A systematic review of the literature from PubMed and Embase was performed from inception to September 10, 2022. A total of 15 articles describing 38 complications among 18 patients were included in the data collection. The most commonly injected substance was hyaluronic acid in 76.4%, excluding one patient who injected an unknown substance. Lips and cheeks were the most commonly injected areas. The most reported complications were edema and erythema in 61% and 28% respectively. Acute vascular compromise was reported in two cases. Acute hearing loss was reported in one case from temporal hollow injection. The most common intervention was use of hyaluronidase and or antibiotics. Surgical intervention was required in two cases. Patients generally healed after treatment, although residual localized hyperpigmentation is noted among 11% of patients. No cases of blindness were reported. Injecting commercially available substances into the face is associated with potentially irreversible aesthetic infections and vascular complications, especially in the hands of untrained consumers. I'll give you all an example of a patient that I recently had that was injecting paraffin and vitamin E into the cheeks and had developed significant foreign body granulomas and granulomatosis um, that could have potentially be activating an autoimmune disease that's currently being worked up. Um, and the only thing that's working is surgical intervention with plastic surgery. So not only are hyaluronic acid fillers used, but depending on where you are in the country, whether it's the East Coast or um, as you get closer to um, Central America, be aware of other injectables as well, such as paraffin, vitamin E, and other oils.